Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, Cancers of the Head and Neck, how they're treated and the importance of early detection. The ones, at least in the oral cavity, people will often assume that it's a tooth or tooth-related, go to the dentist, and a good dentist plays a huge role in making the diagnosis. Plus, the return of something we thought was gone forever, the house call. We're trying to create a, an alternative to urgent care or the emergency department to take care of people at home where it's, it's just more comfortable and a little bit easier. And we examine the epidemic growth of diabetes in children. We're seeing it much more frequently in teenagers and this coincides with the rise in the obesity epidemic that we're seeing. We'll get a checkup from the neck up and hear a piece from our healing muse and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, a centuries-old tradition returns, the house call. Plus, diabetes in children is growing to epidemic proportions. We'll find out why. But first, cancers of the head and neck, and how to prevent them. Cancers of the head and neck account for approximately 3% of all malignancies in the United States. However, the good news is that the overall mortality rates for head and neck cancers have been on the decline for the last decade. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Robert Kelman, Professor and Chair of Otolaryngology and Communication Sciences, and Dr. Francis Hahn, Professor of Radiation Oncology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks. Thank you for being us. So, um, cancers <clears throat> of the head and neck basically have been on the decline, at least mortality has. That's, that's good news. Why is that happening, Dr. Kelman? Uh, it's good news, but uh, the news isn't as good as we'd like to believe because the overall incidence of cancer of the head and neck does not seem to be totally declining. We're seeing a decline in smoking-related cancers, but at the same time, we're seeing an increase in viral stimulated cancers. So it looks like it's kind of averaging out. So we're still, uh, we still have a way to go. So smoking has been a, a crucial cause of head and neck cancers. Is that right, Dr. Yeah, Hahn? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so with the decrease in smoking, or since basically since the large campaign against smoking, mm -hmm. um, there has been a concomitant, <clears throat> excuse me, reduction then in those kinds of cancers. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have noticed that uh, cancer in other sites but the you know, throat area, what we call oropharynx, had been gradually declining. That mm -hmm. is uh, what we mean is uh, in the front portion of the mouth and the what we call the thigh, uh, in the area of the larynx, which is you know the where we make some voices. Those areas there is a tendency to decrease in the instance. But what we found over about 10, past 10 years, that there was a very rapid increase in cancer in the oropharynx that usually includes base of tongue and tonsils. So it really has to do very specifically with the anatomy or what parts are being affected. And I want to get into that a little bit more in terms of the actual causation or how the cancer grows. But you mentioned this notion, you've both been alluding to the fact that there's been a rapid increase in a certain type of cancer. Tell us more about that, Dr. Kelman. And you said virally induced. So this is through the human papillomavirus. That's the culprit? That's correct. Explain that's, to us that's about the that. Virus that. It's the wart virus. So as we all know, it's very prevalent. And some uh, epidemiologic studies have suggested that by middle age, up to 90% of the population has been infected by the wart virus. Now, the wart virus has many, many types. Strains within strains it. Strains within it, and there's one in particular that seems to be associated more with uh, head and neck cancer than the others. There are four uh, so-called risky types, and those are the ones that are in the vaccines. The vaccine was created because of a very powerful link identified between this virus and cervical cancer in women. Uh, 
and initially that's why the vaccine was created, but uh, now it's become quite clear that its ability to cause cancer is not limited to the cervix. Yeah, now it's been a few years, but Michael Douglas, a big celebrity, had was diagnosed with throat cancer and came out with what at the time was a fairly shocking statement that he felt it, it was as a result of engaging in oral sex. But that seems to be, in part, it's se- it is a sexually transmitted disease. That is correct. Yeah. When you say most of us, or 90% of adults, by the time they reach adulthood, may be infected with a strain of HPV, that's not suggesting that they are then have, have the strain that might lead to cancer. Is that right? That's correct. The problem is that we don't really know uh, which people have which strain. So, and there does seem to be uh, evidence that people who have been more active uh, sexually, particularly with oral sex, are more likely to have this strain. So uh, the numbers that I've seen are that if you've had more than six oral sex partners, your likelihood uh, is significantly increased. You know, we've made a statement of, uh, we make a collective statement, head and neck cancers or cancers of the head and neck, but there are very specific anatomical parts that we're talking about. Let's go through what they are. Just why don't you run through what are we talking about when we say cancers of the head and neck? It's a confusing term, uh, particularly I think for the lay public, because we have connotations that they may not be aware of. So uh, a lot of people think of the head as including the brain and the skin, but those are not included in that category. So skin cancer is a separate category, Uh, eye cancer, brain cancer. So we're talking about cancers that involve the mucous membranes of the oral cavity, pharynx, nose and sinuses, nasopharynx, and then the throat, which includes the voice box and the food pipe. How about the salivary glands? Are those also included? Those are included. They represent a much smaller percentage, and they really are a different type because they're not mucous membranes. They're not included in the issues we've been discussing, such as virus and uh, smoking. How, mm-hmm. Dr. Hunt, how would yeah. someone know? I'd like to go through these actually in, by, by area. Mm-hmm. How would you know? If you had oral cancer, for example, what should you be looking for? Usually uh, the patient has some symptoms, uh, some soreness in the mouth. Sores of some kind. Yeah, or difficulty with swallowing, and pain in the ear. It's not uncommon. Uh, Those are probably common symptoms. When we had uh, cancer related to the smoking and drinking, those are quite common symptoms. Nowadays, with the pattern of uh, new uh, cancer related to the virus infection, the HPV, HPV, I see a lot of patients who doesn't have any problem uh, as swallowing or talking or pain in the mouth or throat, but they just come because of swelling of neck, and they just uh, have some neck mass and a go mass to the, in their neck. A mass yeah. in their neck is quite common. And usually they go to the primary physician and they get some antibiotics, but it doesn't shrink down after antibiotics. Then then come to the specialist. So the whole idea is you can have you basically will have in the mouth you might have some sores, trouble chewing, swallowing that kind of thing. In Mm. in the neck and in the I mean in the pharynx and in the larynx you would have pain and some kind of a growth. You, you might have voice changes. Voice needs to. Mm-hmm. That's important. Mm-hmm. Hoarseness that does not go away after about four to six weeks should be evaluated. Um, if you're just joining us, we're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with otolaryngologist Dr. Robert Kalman and radiation oncologist Dr. Francis Hahn, and we're talking about cancers of the head and neck. Um, so basically, you had mentioned to me that it was very important that the dentist plays a very important role in all of this in terms of picking up some of these cancers. Because in many cases, or in some cases, are these silent, in other words, in terms of symptoms? Uh, yes, uh, both. They, they can be not silent or they can be silent, but very often because they're the ones, at least in the oral cavity, people will often assume that it's a tooth or tooth-related, go to the dentist, and a good dentist plays a huge role in making the diagnosis and then appropriately sending the patient for further management. And it even strikes me, I had done some interviews previously with some of the uh, local dentists who have said that an annual check 
for oral potential oral cancers is an important component of good oral care. Absolutely. And it's also true that when someone goes for their annual checkup to their physician, they should make sure that the physician carefully examines their mouth and throat. Oh, very important as well. So let's talk about diagnosis. Mm-hmm. How is this? So let's say a patient comes to you and they have a, 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 some kind of a mass that isn't responding to antibiotics. Mm-hmm. How do you diagnose that this is truly a cancer? At that point, I think we have to have very high you know, suspicion for malignancy. Uh, so sometimes we proceed with some imaging studies to see whether there is any more evidence of disease or not. Well, sometimes if it is very suspicious for malignancy, I usually send the uh, patient to otolaryngologist, and they have what we call fine needle aspiration. It's minimally invasive. It's, it's not a f- fine needle fine aspiration. aspiration. They literally take a sample of the right, tissue. Right, sample of the tissue. That probably is the best. What type of imaging studies are most common? We usually do CT scan uh, for the initial evaluation. If we know this is cancer after the biopsy, then we usually uh, uh, take PET CT scan, which shows whether the tumor has spread to the other part of the body, not limited to the head and neck area. Mm -hmm. And is that common, that that these types of cancers do spread? Dr. Helmut? Statistically, we like to obviously catch them beforehand, before they spread, and it makes a huge difference. We think of the cancer, we have the TNM staging system, uh, which is now commonly known, and you can find it online if you want to read about it, but T is for tumor, N is for lymph nodes in the neck, and M is for what we call distant metastasis. It makes a huge difference. If it's limited, to the T and the N, we can still cure it in most cases. Once it gets to the M, once it gets beyond the neck, they are typically considered incurable. We do still treat people, try to lengthen their lives, but we do not expect to cure the cancer at that point. So that underscores how important early diagnosis is, because obviously if you catch it before it has spread, the chances are, as you said, of a total cure are there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's crucial. Um, what types of treatments then are involved? I mean, it seems pretty obvious that it, it depends on the location of the tumor, the, the, the staging of the tumor, the severity and all of that uh, of, of the cancer. But just over, overall, what types of uh, treatment? There are, there are three basic approaches. There are tumors that can be treated with surgery only tumors that can be treated with either radiation or radiation and chemotherapy only, and then there are tumors that need a combination of surgery and radiation. With or w- Chemotherapy is an adjuvant. We do not use chemotherapy as a curative treatment for these types of cancers. Radiation can cure, surgery can cure, chemotherapy is an assist doesn't work independently. And without the, if there are, in the absence of the metastases, you basically have um, what percentage cure? Well, it depends on the stage. How early we detect this cancer. How early you get it. Yeah, if it is uh, the stage 1 or stage 2, what we call T1, T2, uh, the you know, cure rate is quite high. We are talking about 80%. Um, so it's very hopeful in plus, that case. Right. I don't want to run out of time, but I know that there can be somewhat serious side effects as a result of the surgery and or radiation. I mean, give us an idea of the kinds of problems that we see. Well, there will be a lot of side effects associated with uh, the treatment, depending on how intensely we are going to have a treatment. If it is surgery, depending on what portion of the um, organ should be taken out. If it's radiation therapy, usually we have side effects, long-lasting side effects of dryness of the mouth, and sometimes they have some problem with uh, swallowing. So swallowing your dryness in the mouth, but how about in the surgical arena? What are the kinds of things you see? That depends a lot on the location and the extent of the tumor. Small tumors you can remove with minimal side effects, as you'd imagine. Once they get large, you have to remove the entire tumor, which means you're removing a significant portion of an organ. So if it's the tongue, you're removing a lot of the tongue, that affects speech. If it's the voice box, Obviously, that affects the ability to produce sound. Contrary to popular thinking, the tongue is more important than the voice box for speech. Yeah. So you can lose your voice box and still 
have alternatives that create near normal speech. Mm -hmm. You lose your tongue, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But you, you have also pointed out to me in other conversations that reconstruction is a lot better these days than it ever was. I don't know about the tongue, but I mean in other sure. parts of the... And even the tongue. The, the greatest advances in surgery in the last two or three decades have been in the reconstruction. The resections, the removal of a tumor remain fairly constant. You have mm -hmm. to get the tumor out. Right, uh, but with the good margins. Yes, right. but the reconstructive techniques have uh, gone forward by leaps and bounds. Well, this is incredibly helpful and important information. One quick thing, prevention mm -hmm. would be smoking cessation and maybe this... Vaccination against HPV. Everyone coming up from childhood today in our society should be vaccinated against the high-risk strains of HPV. We believe, obviously it's too soon to be able to prove it, but we believe that if we get everybody vaccinated in a generation, we will no longer see the virally caused cancers. Well, that's a very hopeful way to end, uh, a note to end on. Thank you so very much. My guests have been Dr. Robert Kelman, Professor and Chair of Otolaryngology and Communication Sciences, and Dr. Francis Hahn, Professor of Radiation Oncology, both from Upstate Medical University. Next, a centuries-old tradition is returning, the house call. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. In a traumatic or emergency medical situation, every second can count, and time can tick away, especially when the victim is in an isolated rural environment. Well, now a centuries-old service is being resurrected to deal with this problem by transporting physicians directly to patients rather than the other way around. House calls are back. Yes, and here with more on this is Dr. Christian Knudsen, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Knudsen. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Linda. So house calls were once a thing of the past and a routine thing of the past, but quite a long time ago now. So they're making a comeback. Tell us about that. I, I think everyone knows the story of trying to go to the emergency department when they're hurt or when they're sick. And the thought of going uh, can give people pause. The wait, the drive, um, waiting for emergencies to get taken care of first. Um, and we thought there might be a better way um, to reverse the process and take the care back to the patient. If they do need to wait, have them wait at home. Um, we can bring a lot of care to them directly. So exactly what, I mean, you said the impetus was really the knowledge that in many cases people with lesser than an, a, a very acute emergency, mm -hmm. may end up in an emergency room and sitting for hours and hours and hours to get the kind of care that, in this case, you could provide them directly at their home. Yes. And is that basically was the impetus for this program? Yes. You see people cut their hands making dinner, um, people with mild slip and falls, um, things that take only a couple of minutes to assess or to treat um, that we can take care of and just takes time in the emergency department. So we're trying to create a, an alternative to urgent care or the emergency department to take care of people at home where it's, it's just more comfortable and a little bit easier sometimes. Yeah, give us a, a kind of a rounder picture of who this would be appropriate for because I think that's going to be the first question someone will ask. Will I be you know, a reasonable candidate for this mm -hmm. kind of issue, for, for this service? I, I think there's a wide range of folks uh, who this is appropriate for. Uh, children with fevers, their pediatrician's office is closed, mom is worried, they want them checked, we can do that. Uh, ear infections, cold, sinusitis, sore throats, we can look at those. Um, older people with uh, just mild injuries, teenagers with the concussions that uh, family wants to have evaluated. Um, older folks with skin tears, not feeling well. Uh, pregnant women who are throwing up and just feel dehydrated and don't want to go to the ER urgent care for IV fluid. Um, 
there's a long list of, of things we can take care of, I think we can take care of in the home. And especially in a climate like ours where we have weather issues and all kinds of situations right. where there may be real difficulty in getting to an emergency room. Patients may have to, whole families. If one is sick, they have to pack them all up in the minivan or the, or the car and try to get to the hospital or the urgent care. Or some people just are, are hurt or older and they can't move as easily as they used to. Uh, maybe having a doctor come to them would be a better alternative. So how does it exactly work? Um, in other words, you were talking about the fact that a lot of these issues could either be primary care kind of yeah. issues as well as more of an, a kind of an acute emergency. It, there, How do you know? You know, um, you can go to our website, uh, upstate.edu slash at home. We have a whole list of potential things we can take care of. Um, if you're not sure, you can call 464-4646. We have uh, registered nurses who will answer your call and who will triage you, um, ask you questions to make sure what you have is appropriate. Some things are always appropriate for the emergency department. Uh, chest pain, uh, bad shortness of breath, acute abdominal pain, uh, obvious fractures. Those are not good for house calls. Um, but for everything else, if there's a gray area, or if you're not sure, our nurses can ask you a few questions, help you know where to go. And if they're not sure, they can contact the physician on call and we can answer as well. So there's a phone number that 464-4646 and there will be a person on the other end who is knowledgeable, a nurse yes. or someone who can help you decide, the person decide, the patient decide whether it's appropriate to have a house call service. Yes. Or and sometimes not. they may call their primary care doctor and they may refer folks to us as well if they're busy or, or think we can help them. You know, it used to be that doctors would bring this little black bag that would have everything in it. Yes. But today, with all of the you know demands for diagnose, diagnostic testing and imaging types of results and all of that, how how is how can you you know do all of that or accomplish all of that by going into someone's home? I mean, obviously, you're not bringing all of that to the, to the home, and yeah. you're potentially opening what I think of as a potential Pandora's box of questions when you go and see something that may seem on the surface to be a simple set of symptoms. Right. I think the doctor's black bag was easy uh, once upon a time because there wasn't much in it. It's been replaced by multiple bags uh, since then. Um, I have six or seven different bags plus a doctor's black bag um, to assess patients and have the equipment to do point-of-care testing, some very simple testing at home for urine tests and strep throat, um, and the equipment to take care of nosebleeds and lacerations, um, uh, dehydration, throwing up. So not one bag, but several now. So in fact, there is a, a multiple black bags, Mul so to speak. <laughs> not black, but multiple. Right. <laughs> multiple. we have one black bag and multiple other bags to, so to take with us. So you can, in effect, bring a lot of that equipment yes. to the patient. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with emergency medical physician, Dr. Christian Knudsen, and we're talking about house calls, the return of house calls. So, I mean, what do you imagine? I know you. this is a new service now. What do you imagine the kind of typical kind of call would be where it would be ideal for what you have to offer? I think ideal would be those those patients who are after hours, after their, their regular doctor's offices have closed, because obviously your primary care doctor is most often the best person for you to see. Um, and people who have difficulty traveling, difficulty moving, um, or just the just the inconvenience of trying to travel when you're feeling sick. One of the worst times to get in the car and drive is when you feel awful. Um, so those are the folks I think we can provide the most help to. And it would strike me also people who perhaps live alone and yes. or elderly and may not have the ability to get themselves there unless, again, this whole thing of an ambulance and yeah. many people are afraid of that, think it's not what that what their feeling isn't doesn't require that kind of degree. Sometimes of folks call emergency. ambulances because they don't know where else to call, um, and and their regular doctor can't see them. So this is an alternative to have someone see you. And we may see people and say, yes, indeed, you are sick and you need to go to the hospital. But it'll give you that that definitive peace of mind that you've been seen by a doctor. We've uh, given you an assessment, and we know you're good to stay home. We can take care of you here, or you definitely need a higher level of care, and we can help you get to the hospital. Yeah, so that was my next question, actually, and you just kind of segued into it. What happens if the problem does require much more intensive 
intervention, what, do you, what exactly would you do in that case? I think a few things. One, we could start taking care of the patient there. Uh, there's no reason we can't put an IV in, start fluids, start medicines we think are appropriate. Uh, Much like if you were an ambulance, an EMT team. Correct. Um, and call 911 with you. Um, we can, uh, being an emergency medicine doctor, I know the 911 center and how to reach them. Um, we can contact them directly. Uh, and then how to work with the ambulance services to get you to the hospital. And, of course, we can always call ahead to the ER to, to tell them what's coming, what to expect, and uh, try to give you a good continuity of care as you go to the hospital. So you really get a heads up or a leg up on the care if, mm -hmm. if it need be more intense and, in a way, make it seamless yes. for someone who's having an issue like that. So what, do you, what other benefits, I was thinking about this and thinking to myself, what other benefits would you as the physician derive from seeing someone in their home? One of the most uh, interesting things is to see people at home. I think when they come to the ER, come to the hospital, come to your doctor's office, you miss that part of where the patient lives, what are the challenges they have, where are the conditions they're facing, what is, what's the support they have at home. Um, being an EMS physician and going to work with ambulances and seeing people in their home is always enlightening. You kind of get that feel for what what's wrong or what part of what's the challenges for the patient. Um, and then how does that impact, for give me some examples of what? Like, for example, you might see that they their medications are all over the place. They have multiple medications. They're all in a big box. Um, they have bathrooms that are not very accessible for the patient. Their house is a mess because they don't have the support to keep it clean. Um, or there's no food in the refrigerator. No food, <laughs> no heat. You know, it's just, it's difficult sometimes. Um, can we fix all of that? Probably not, but... Seeing that, we can communicate with social services or with primary care doctors especially to work on at least communicating back to them the challenges our patients are seeing and may, maybe bring them some help to them as well. And maybe reduce their need for a, an emergency room visit going forward. Yes. Slip and falls, medication errors, um, all of those can contribute to going back to the ER. So if we can at least be a part of the solution, I hope we can offer that to patients. Um what, how, with, with this, which, which sounds like an ideal service, <clears throat> excuse me, a wonderful service, how is this going to get paid for, or how mm -hmm. is it paid for? Um, one of the nice things is we're, we're working with most major insurance companies in the area. Um, so Excellus, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, Pomco, MVP, Medicare, we've all been in discussions with them um, and uh, working with them to deliver our care. For anyone who calls, just like the emergency department, we'll work with insurance companies. We will ask for co-payment uh, by credit card at the time of call, the same as the doctor's office, the same as the emergency department, the same as urgent care. Afterwards, the exact charges really depend on an, the patient's insurance. There's so many different insurances, so many different variables. I can't say this than that, um, but uh, we do work with insurance companies to, to, uh, to bill. So the bottom line is if you have any desire or thought that you might want to utilize this service, you might want to check with your insurance company just to know whether your particular carrier, whether it be the government and Medicare or a private insurer, is set up to handle this kind of, yes. these kinds of charges and these kinds of supports. Yes. So um, is this program unique to Central New York? It is, uh, yes and no. Um, a lot of primary care doctors do some house calls already, just kind of on the side. This will be a dedicated service, so in that respect, this is the unique part to, uh, to offer to the area. And some programs I, I kind of researched a little bit, there are programs like this starting up throughout the country as well. Some have been around for 20 years, some are all new and popping up uh, different locations. So the house call is kind of on its way back. I think it is. <laughs> With a change in health care, it's, it's, you may see uh, an increase in health calls. In so country. do you feel there's a future for this concept very briefly, in a little bit I of do. Time. I think if we're starting on the east side of Syracuse, and if it works, I think we can expand it to the city and other surrounding areas and, and really offer patients a, a convenient, uh, cost-effective type of care. Thanks so much for coming in and sharing it with us. My guest has been Dr. Christian Knudsen, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Ow. Ouch. Sick. Mm, bummer in the summer or the joy 
of healing. Well, folks, if you're a regular listener, you know that health-wise, the past 18 months have been tough for me, a guy who luckily, with some help from the advisable good diet, exercise, take care of stress, get plenty of sleep lifestyle, has until recently been able to check that excellent health box on any and all forms requiring such self-assessment and public declaration. Then the worm, and that word worm feels just right. The worm turned with an Achilles strain that stopped me running and training to my goal of being the fastest old guy athlete in the Western Hemisphere, or at least among those who show up for a Syracuse race one day anyway. And then I fell on black ice and broke a rib. Ouch, ouch, ouch. And then got the flu twice. Sick, sick. Even though I got the flu shot. And soon I heard negative stuff popping up in my mind over and over. You know the space like thinking, how much bad luck can one guy have? And then the handlebars on my bike came off, so with handlebars firmly in hand, I crashed, broke my fall with my hands, and broke my hand. Ouch, 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 ouch. More negative stuff. Can you believe those noodle heads designed those handlebars that way? Then, when my Achilles was finally a bit better, enough anyway to start me running again, didn't my sacroiliac joint, whoever knew that was a real thing, yell, pain, pain, stop, stop. More negative, what's up with this body of mine? And then my scalp got so itchy, I went to see my doc who poked around and diagnosed dermatitis and gave me a special shampoo, but then said, by the way, one of these itchy spots looks like skin cancer. What? I wear a hat when I run. What's up, son? Bummer in the summer. And then the skin cancer doc said I had not one, but three suspicious possible cancer spots and cut them all out, none of which turned out to be cancer. Couldn't they tell me before they cut three chunks of me out? And meanwhile, I was allergic to the shampoo. So next I had spots all over my face too, and the dermatitis got infected, leading to antibiotics twice a day, on top of the 30 minutes a day for the sacroiliac PT exercises, and the 20 minutes a day for the get rid of the hand pain OT exercises, and the five a day for the Achilles stretch and strengtheners. Enough already! And then the hand doc told me the bike kaboom made my already bent pinky worse, so I need a painful surgery or a, get this, $4,000 injection, not much covered by insurance at all, if at all. Yow! As Johann Sebastian Bach said, I am much afflicted. <laughs> yeah, he got it right. So I've been discovering firsthand, so to speak, what the research shows. Health problems, especially chronic ones, make our minds cranky. Then I discovered something else when my wife asked how things went at my latest doctor's appointment. Looking into my eyes, she said, Boy, you've had a lot for a long time. And I felt some better right then with compassion from her and from myself. And the unhappy, ow, ouch, bummer, yow, mind pollution began clearing. And I find myself grateful to everyone caring for me. And then a big surprise. I felt the joy of my body healing. What a pleasure to feel healing itself with a little help from my friends amazing. So thanks to all my PTs, OTs, MDs, RNs, pharmacists, and all you scientists backing them all up. Take good care of yourself, everybody. I'm Dr. Rich. Humpty Dumpty on the mend. O'Neill. <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Next up, 
why diabetes in children is growing to epidemic proportions. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Type 2 diabetes used to be practically unheard of in people under 30, and that almost all children with diabetes suffered from the type 1 form of the disease. But type 2 diabetes isn't just for adults anymore. In fact, the number of children and adolescents with the condition, most of whom are diagnosed within their early teen years, has skyrocketed within the last 20 years prompting the journal Diabetes Care to call it an emerging epidemic. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Roberto Izquierdo, Professor of Medicine and and Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and the Division Chief of Pediatric Endocrine and Diabetes at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. Welcome. Thanks for coming in, Dr. Thank you. Good morning. So type 2 diabetes is now a disease of children. Explain that. Yeah, we're seeing it much more frequently in, uh, in teenagers. Uh, and, uh, and this coincides with the rise in uh, the obesity epidemic that we're seeing. I read somewhere that it was less than 5% in 1994, and now it's nearly 20% of all, newborn, uh, of all newly diagnosed cases of the disease are among youth. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the statistics tell us. I, I could tell you from personal experience, when I was an endocrine fellow like 20 years ago, we only had like maybe one patient a year that we saw, and now we see maybe uh, in this area uh, uh, up to maybe 20 or 30 patients per year, whereas, uh, um, but in larger cities, it's m- much more common. So it really is growing, and you l- alluded to why it's happening. But before we get there, mm-hmm. help us understand for the benefit of our listeners the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2. Well, in, uh, in type 1 diabetes, the main uh, defect is lack of insulin secretion. Uh, insulin is a hormone which is like uh, produced by the pancreas, which is uh, circulates through the blood and it's like a key in, in the sense that it opens the door for the sugar in the blood to enter the cells to be metabolized for, uh, for, uh, 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 for energy. Uh, so in type 1, there's no um, insulin production, um, whereas in type 2, there is insulin production, but the main uh, problem lies in the cells themselves. They don't accept the insulin as well. As a result, then the, uh, uh, the uh, blood sugar accumulates. Uh, so in, in type 1, you're really fully insulin-dependent, so you need to be giving yourself insulin shots or some yeah. kind of a pump, or you basically require insulin from the outside. But in type 2, that isn't the case. No, since they produce insulin, um, uh, we are, uh, uh, we're able to treat it in different ways, whereas, uh, 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 um, like uh, for example, with type 1, if you don't receive insulin, um, you could get very awfully sick because you start producing um, some chemicals called ketones from fat metabolism, and those ketones can make you very sick because they're acidic. Whereas in type 2, because you produce some insulin, you don't uh, get those ketones do not rise to a very high level. As a consequence, you're, um, you're, you're a little bit protected from uh, those uh, severe acute complications. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about treatment in a second, but why is it happening now that so many kids are being, you know, diagnosed with type two? You mentioned it, obesity. Is that the main? Yeah, type two. Force? I think is um, is associated with obesity and and, uh, and and also inactivity. I think we all have become, well, uh, many of us have become more overweight uh, and also less active. Uh, yeah, and, and I read the, something interesting that I had never yeah. known before that somehow that scientists have found that certain fat cells are metabolically active and secrete chemicals that raise inflammation levels in the body, and they basically contribute to an increased fat in the liver, and that creates insulin resistance. Yes. And that happens a lot because if you don't have ex- either in the obesity factor mm-hmm. and also if you don't exercise, 
that exercise also makes the cells more receptive to insulin. That's right. Exercise uh, is very important. Um, uh, and, and it's able to overcome that insulin resistance. So uh, weight loss, and or at least in children since they're growing, weight maintenance, and uh, exercise, increased physical activity, you're able to uh, reduce the insulin resistance. And Has there also been an increase in type 1 diabetes in children, you've said? Yeah, yeah there is. There's a yeah, dramatic increase in type 1, too. Uh, it has been increasing by 3 to 5% per year. And there was a study from Philadelphia uh, in which uh, they, they studied the increased incidence uh, from 1985, 1985 to 1989, and there was an increase of about 29% from uh, several decades before. And this is when you have total insulin de insulin dependence. Why do you think this is happening? Uh, you know, we're not completely sure. Uh, there are several hypotheses. Um, one is uh, one actually links it to the rise in obesity too. Like you mentioned, the uh, inflammatory uh, uh, chemicals or so cytokines, and these chemicals then can damage the beta cell and it trigger an autoimmune response. So in that's the pancreas. In so the, the pancreas, pancreas stops producing. Stops producing. And there's some other hypotheses uh, called um, the hi um, hygiene hypotheses where um, since our environment is cleaner overall, uh, we're, our immune system is not, um, let's say, uh, strengthened uh, at a young age uh, by exposure to certain germs. And as a result, we become more susceptible to autoimmune diseases. That's very interesting because of recently I've heard that hygiene hypothesis used in a lot of yeah. explanations. The idea that as the twenty the twenty first century now has become we've mm -hmm. become a, a society of cleanliness. At least when you compare us to the other, you know, the third world countries and the rest yes. of the world, and that many of our children, as a result, are kept so clean and in a way their immune system doesn't have the opportunity to develop itself in practice yeah. Yeah. as the child grows and the idea is that then it turns on itself and develops basically these autoimmune diseases right. yeah. and diabetes is one it's of one them. It's one of them. Asthma is another one. Asthma. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's, and also this was in context of things like peanut allergies and mm -hmm other kinds of foodborne allergies, yeah. but it's very, very interesting yeah. hypothesis. So I think we got to let our children play in the mud. Play in the <laughs> mud. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen here along with endocrinologist Dr. Roberto Izquierdo, and we're talking about diabetes in children, both type 1 and type 2. So let's get back to type 2 for a second. Are there certain populations who are more prone to this problem? Yeah, yeah uh, you know, it's, mo it's much more common in uh, Latinos, African-Americans, South, a uh, South um, Asians. Um, Asian-Americans. Asian-Americans. So, so they uh, are more prone. And another very important role is family history. So if, um, if, if the child is obese and has a family history, and in particular belongs to one of these ethnic groups, then their chances of diabetes is much higher. So there's almost developing. like a three strikes against you right. based on what yes. you just said. Um, what are the warning signs? I mean, how mm -hmm. does someone know, if as a parent perhaps, that their child might be showing signs of diabetes, either type 1 or type 2? Yeah, yeah the warning signs are similar for both uh, uh, and include like excessive thirst, uh, drinking a lot of water, urinating a lot, getting up at night to urinate or bedwetting in a child. Uh, and weight loss. So diabetes is very uh, out of control. You, you lose weight. There's some. Is there some skin condition also that's a diagnostic there indicator is, for type two? Yeah, there is a skin condition. Um, is uh, insulin resistance causes a thickening of the back of the neck? So you get this little thick area that's darker than the rest of the skin, and it's like velvety. Um, some people think it's dirt, but it's not. So, in fact, that can be an indicator, and too. And that could be an indicator, too. Um, basically, how you go about doing the diagnosis, then? Yeah. We diagnose uh, type 2 through a blood test. So we could either... Uh, the best blood test is a fasting blood sugar. Um, in, in adults, we often also use the 
hemoglobin A1C, which is a test that measures the amount of sugar attached to the hemoglobin in the red blood cells, which I think is useful too in kids and adolescents because if it's very high, that indicates that your sugars are high. So who do you think, I mean, basically, who should be screened or tested? Yeah, we... Is that these populations we were talking about? Yeah, we recommend... um, You know, the American Diabetes Association recommends testing um, children and adolescents who are uh, overweight, uh, who have, and that means that their weight is over, their BMI, or body mass index, over the 85th percentile. Body mass index over the 30th percentile. I'm sorry, over the 95th, 85th percentile. Over the 85th percentile. Yeah, the BMI, the BMI, Mm -hmm. yeah. or if they're you know, very overweight, if there's a family history of diabetes, and then if, if they belong to one of these uh, ethnic groups. Native Americans, Latinos, you know, African Americans, Asian Americans, yeah. and I read somewhere Pacific Islanders as well. Pacific Islanders, yeah. And also, I think, uh, and also there's certain as, uh, conditions associated with obesity, or uh, which we talked about the skin conditions. So if you, have, if you notice, if the doctor or, or the primary care provider notices that, those findings, um, they should test. So they, I saw some kind of a recommendation by the American Diabetes Association, as you said, that overweight children with at least two risk factors should be given a fasting blood sugar every two years beginning at age 10? That's correct, yeah, that's. So what, what are the kinds of consequences that come with type 2 diabetes, yeah. both in terms of the, the kinds of various symptomatology that you were mm-hmm. talking about but also in terms of the long-term consequences. Yeah, I mean, type 2 is a very serious disease um, because you, you can have lack of uh, symptoms uh, or minimal symptoms. Lack of awareness. Lack then. of awareness and still m- manage okay, but the high sugars are causing damage. So uh, long-term uh, damage from the high blood sugars include kidney damage and leading to renal failure, uh, nerve damage, which then leads to lack of sensation in the feet, which can lead to amputation, and eye dam- uh, and damage to the vessels in the back of the eye, the retina, and that could lead to blindness. So, uh, And then also uh, in young women, uh, it does increase uh, the incidence of fetal loss, so and miscarriages. So, so it's uh, really important to diagnose mm-hmm. and basically be aware if you right. are, if you do have type 2 right. diabetes, mm-hmm. as you said, it could be more silent. It's not as obvious, perhaps, as type 1, That's where you're correct. totally yeah. insulin dependent. Yeah. So what are the kinds of treatments? Yeah, the treatments, I mean, the most is uh, uh, lifestyle intervention is very important. So we try to minimize the screen time uh, to maybe two hours per day. So, that so they'll get out and move. And move, yeah, activity about one hour per day. And that could be any activity that the child enjoys, swimming, dancing, um, tennis, whatever, uh, basketball. And then, um, and then we have the patients see, and the families too, see a dietitian uh, review portion control to try to achieve uh, weight maintenance or weight loss. So those are the more important things that you don't need to be giving insulin at the er, in the early stages mm-hmm. if you can control it through lifestyle. That's correct. If 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 the uh, presentation is mild, the disease is mild, we can control it with lifestyle changes. And then, also there's medications like metformin that's very useful. And metformin is a medicine that works on the liver to decrease uh, the output of glucose. Now, uh, and and. Those two medications, I mean, if the lifestyle and, and metformin doesn't work, then we often add insulin. You might have to at some point. In the very little bit of time we have left, what is the Joslin Diabetes Center offering today that's different? Uh, well, we're, uh, or I mean, we're offering a whole variety of services, uh, which include dietary intervention. Uh, uh, um, we have uh, several great nurse educators that works with the families and the patient. We also have social work, social ser- social services, which I, we find very useful. Um, and then we have, uh, especially for the type 1, we have programs like pump orientation class, um, preparation for college. All uh, kinds of things to get yeah. both types of children with both types of problems back on the right track. That's correct. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. Okay, you're A lot of very, very interesting information. My guest has been Dr. Roberto Izquierdo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and the division chief of pediatric endocrine and diabetes at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Patsy Asuncion gives us a glimpse into the sorrow borne by a caregiver whose beloved no longer can recognize her. Here is emptying. Hole in the bucket, nothing to mend it. Cells die and unknit, brain gaps deepen slits. Who's that, he asks. What's that, he rasps. Same queries, alas. Response wears mask. Memory pours out. New files don't rout. Recall and doubt. Facts blurred throughout. Who's that, I pry. Sad stares reply. Blank eyes don't lie. Mere shell I spy. Decline just creeps. Drip, drop. He seeps, lost love I weep, raw tears, knee deep. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week as we learn all about melanoma and former President Jimmy Carter's battle with the disease. Plus, family therapy, how it works, and who it helps, and the long-term effects of corporal punishment on children. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on our website, that's healthlinkonair, that's all one word, dot org, or in iTunes by searching HealthLink on Air. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.